You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love Main Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program. CEI wasn't the only reason we became interested in microenterprise, but I would say it was our interest in women business owners that encouraged us to get into microenterprise on a larger, on a larger scale. Immigrants and refugees, they want a safe place to live. They want to raise their kids where education is valued and communities valued. We're all human and we all want what's best for our family and, and for our community and everyone wants to be included and, and I think Mainers are open enough to do those things. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Apothecary by Design, MacPage, and Berlin City Honda of Portland. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love Main Radio, show number 206, Coastal Enterprises Incorporated, airing for the first time on Sunday, August 23, 2015. Coastal Enterprises Incorporated, also known as CEI, has specialized in rural business development and financing since 1977. Founded in Wiscasset, CEI helps create economically and environmentally healthy communities in which all people, especially those with low incomes, can reach their full potential. Today we speak with Ellen Golden, Managing Director of CEI Investment Notes, and Tay Chong of the CEI Start Smart program, which helps refugees and immigrants start, strengthen, or expand their own small businesses. Thank you for joining us. Today in the studio with me, I have Ellen Golden, who is the Managing Director of CEI Investment Notes. Ellen has expertise in research, program, and policy development with respect to women business owners and microenterprise development. She is a recipient of the SBA's Women in Business Advocate, Minority Advocate, and Financial Services Advocate of the Year Awards for Maine. She lives in Woolwich. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. I know that what you're doing now, the CEI Investment Notes, is um, a little bit different than what you were focusing on before the microenterprise and the women business owners programming. Tell me what that is. You could think of that as impact investing. Um, as you may be aware, there's a history of people being interested in how they can allocate or direct capital in order to accomplish good as well as getting a financial return. So impact investing very simply is about looking for a financial return but also looking for social, economic, and environmental benefit as well. And CEI Investment Notes makes a fixed income product available to accredited investors who have a desire to allocate a portion of their assets to invest in the community because they want to they want to do some good um, primarily here in Maine. So give me some examples of sure. um, projects that you've been supporting. Sure. It's really actually that there are two aspects to this program, both of which are fun. One is engaging the investors, right, because they're the source of capital um, and understanding what their interests are. But then the other is identifying really great projects, high high impact projects that are going to benefit the community and putting the money out. Um, I can think of lots of examples. It's pretty diverse portfolio. It's everything from refugees entrepreneurs who want to purchase a small restaurant in order to sort of recapture a life that they lost during um, a period of time when their country was in conflict. We financed um, an Iraqi refugee family that had been restauranteurs in Baghdad. They had had 15 years of experience. Um, Obviously, they had to flee. They found their way to Maine um, and spent a long time learning English, saving money, looking for the right opportunity, and we were able to give them a relatively modest loan 
that enabled them to acquire a restaurant and basically rebuild a life that they had lost. So it was, it was great. Um, it's everything from that to manufacturing to young farmers acquiring farms and building, you know, obviously great lives here in Maine, um, growing healthy food for, you know, Maine people and their families. So it sounds like a win-win situation. You have people who want to support the young farmers and the Iraqi family, and then you have the family and the farmers themselves who are doing things to, um, I guess, give back to the community as well as build their own lives back. Exactly. So you have individuals or families that have um, money that they don't obviously need for their immediate needs. They're interested in getting some kind of return, but they're not interested in maximizing that return. And they really want to feel good about where their money is going. Um, and the investors have a range of interests. Some care about job creation, some care about affordable housing, some care about sustainable agriculture or renewable energy. It really varies pretty widely. And we're fortunate that we're able to um, develop and maintain a diverse portfolio that, um, that you know, aligns with their personal interests and values. It seems as though that's become increasingly important to people to know where their money is going and to feel good about the investments that they're making. Oh, absolutely. Um, we launched this program in 2009, and we now have 124 investors and a little bit over seven and a half million dollars that we've raised. And the the um, it's been so interesting to see um, sort of the nature of the conversation shift over that almost six year period where. Um, we actually get people reaching out to us, calling us and saying, you know, we've read about CEI, we like the work that you do, and we want to know if there's an opportunity for us to invest with you. So it's, it's great. But it's not just in Maine. That's happening nationally and internationally as well. People are understanding that you can address certain kinds of social issues through, um, you know, let's say a thoughtful allocation of, of money. Tell me about the, the specialties that you had before um, in female business owners and also micro-enterprise. Sure. Um, so I started working um, actually a number of years ago with women business owners at a point when there really wasn't, they didn't have much credibility and they weren't particularly visible in the community. Um, nobody was putting them on the front page of the newspaper and highlighting their accomplishments. Um, so we started by doing some research because at the time there was so little known about even the kinds of businesses they were starting the kinds of situations that they faced, their experiences altogether. And what we discovered was, of course, that um, although there were many women who were working very hard at being self-employed or as, as business owners with employees, they weren't necessarily generating the income that they wanted or needed to support themselves and their families. Um, they weren't necessarily getting access to the resources that they should have. Um, they were fairly isolated. Um, so we took that research and started to design and develop programs and ultimately uh, created the Women's Business Center at CEI, which continues to thrive. Um, and we do a lot of individual ad advising to women business owners, both women who want to start businesses as well as women who are in businesses. And we're also able to provide access to capital. And equally important, although in a different way, is we can help women form networks of support. I mean, there's nothing like having, as I'm sure you know in your own life, a great peer network to give you some advice and feedback on what you're doing. Um, so it's been great over a number of decades to be able to see that not only are women accomplishing more, but they're finally getting recognition for what they're doing. And what about micro-enterprise? Well, Maine, you know, everybody is fond of saying that Maine is a small business state. Well, it's also really a micro-enterprise state. And when we're talking about micro-enterprises, um, there are a couple of ways to think about it. Some define it as businesses with five or fewer employees, and others say businesses that need capital in relatively small amounts, so under $50,000. There are over 100,000 um, micro-enterprises in the state. And in some of the state's counties, particularly rural ones like Lincoln County, where there really aren't many major employers, that's the primary source of employment in the, st in the, in the county. Um, 
not unlike women business owners, um, because they operate on a small scale, many microenterprises have difficulty getting access to resources. They also are sometimes not taken as seriously. People will misunderstand and think that they're hobbies, when in fact people are really very serious and genuinely need the income. Um, for the overlap between microenterprise and women's business development is that many women tend to start their enterprises on a very small scale, in part because they haven't had access to money, they haven't don't have a lot of savings, they may lack confidence, they don't have experience, they don't have the vocabulary, um, and they may sometimes be building a business out of something that they've done as an avocation or a hobby, so they tend to really start fairly small, and in fact, CEI... Um, it um, wasn't the only reason we became interested in microenterprise, but I would say it was our interest in women business owners that encouraged us to get into microenterprise on a larger, on a larger scale. It, it seems to me as though if somebody is, has started doing something, maybe even just as a hobby or an avocation, that it's something that they really enjoy doing. It's mm -hmm. something that they really can put their energy behind, and they really they could really make a go of it because there are a lot of things that many of us do that maybe we don't care quite as much about right so is there a is there a skill to changing something from i really enjoy doing this i don't need to make money off of it but it's something that makes me happy to i really enjoy doing this i want to keep doing it and i'd also like to have it become my life's work yeah there's a very i think there's a huge shift in terms of how you think about it and the way that you think about your time and resources um this is not an example from one of our clients, but it's an example that I love from years ago. Um, it came from another organization, one of our peers in another state, where they were working with a woman who loved making egg rolls. She loved to cook, and she thought she was going to make a business out of egg rolls. And she charged, let's say for the sake of argument, a dollar a piece. Well, then she did the math and discovered how many egg rolls she'd have to make in a year in order to make a living. So. As a hobby, you wouldn't care, right? You would simply just continue to make egg rolls because you love doing it. But if you thought you were going to make a living out of it, then you would have to start looking at, at the whole process very differently and thinking about um, how many of, you know, X widgets do I have to make? What's the actual cost of it? Um, if I need to make X, is there a large enough market to absorb it? So it requires a little bit more thought and planning and analysis. And I think it's really important for somebody who's um, thinking about that to really think about what their ultimate goal is. Um, do you want to make a great deal of money? Do you want to make a modest amount of money? Do you want to be in a position to create jobs? Um, you know, do you want to have a home-based business? Do you want to you know, sort of move it out into another space where you can really grow? Um, so there's, there's sort of a, a range of things. Um, I mean, there's a business owner, maybe you know Mad Gab, um, she does wonderful products. Anyway, she's a business that CEI has worked with over a long period of time. And as you may know from her story, she started making lip lube in um, as a, on a part-time basis as a student. Um, and she's a perfect example of somebody who has really had to learn to think differently as her business has evolved and as she's had to, you know, She's had her, you know, her challenges like every other business owner, but as she's tried to grow it and develop new products and think through what the markets are and what her competition is doing. I, I do, I am familiar with um, Mad Gabs. I have teenage daughters, so oh. <laughs> a fair amount of their um, lip balm in our house. That's great. And, and it is a great story. You're right. I think that several years ago I read about her mm -hmm. initial forays into this and as a college student. And it is interesting to me that this is something that she was able to do from a fairly young age. Right. So she didn't have to wait until she was established anyway. She could kind of keep showing up every day, keep putting her energy behind it, and actually build something over time. Well, you know, it's an advantage. There, there are so many different ways you can get into business. I mean, some people buy an existing business. Some people save. It, you know, it varies a lot with the kind of business. But there are lots of businesses that you can get into on a fairly small scale, um, as she did, where it was more or less within her means 
or she may have had a little bit of family help in terms of um, a little bit of capital to help getting get her going before um, she looked beyond that. Um, but by the time she started looking for outside capital, she also had a little bit of a track record and she had some experience. But you'll sometimes see people who start ca- by catering, for example, and ultimately then go into a restaurant or people who will do specialty foods and do it at home before moving into a larger facility or even um people who will start with, uh, for example, a home-based childcare and ultimately expand into a larger, you know, facility where they can care for many more children. I think there are lots of examples where there is a path where you can start with limit, by limiting your risk. You know, if you start small, gain some experience, um, test the market, see whether or not your original idea is really the one that's going to work. Because lots of people start with an idea and end up in a very different place once they actually start, you know, presenting whatever they're doing to the market. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point because there has to be a flexibility. I would think a flexibility of mindset. Um, oh yeah. Between what you <clears throat> what you see as a possibility and what you learn over time is the likelihood. Absolutely. I mean, over the years, obviously, we've reflected a lot on why some businesses grow and some don't, why some succeed and others don't. And um, I would say one of the biggest factors is that ability to adapt, right, to be able to pay attention to what's happening, to see and understand trends, be aware of changes in the market or changes in competition, but then also to be strategic and make changes as you, as you need to. Um, you may love a product beyond all reason, but if nobody else does, it's obviously not going to be very successful. So you may have to abandon something. It may even be the first thing that you you know made to go into the market, and I'm sure that can be very difficult for somebody. But in order to be successful, you have to be prepared to really respond to what's happening um, outside of you. It's also an ability to see um, the things that are happening outside of you as not failures. Absolutely. As you know, if you start with something that you love and it doesn't really work for whatever reason because the market doesn't support it, there just isn't enough interest, it doesn't mean that it's not valuable or valid. It just wasn't valuable or valid enough, and it's something from which you can learn. Absolutely. And sometimes it's really a question of timing. Um, I, I can't think of a good example off the top of my head right now, but there are lots of businesses where somebody had an idea um, and it didn't work. But five years later, it does, right? Because the market's just not there yet. You know, things are constantly shifting. It's pretty dynamic. Yes, I I was just thinking about a conversation I had with an art professor up at Bates, and he just reminded me that many artists never become popular during the time in which they create their art. It's only after they pass away, (laughs) and they cannot even financially benefit from this. Exactly. I mean, that would be a perfect example of, um, you know, people doing something that really matters a great deal to them. In the case of artists, you know, you can only do what you can do, um, and the public just not being ready for it. yeah, it's un- it's it's often sad and unfortunate. You know, Van Gogh is a famous example of that of somebody who was certainly not appreciated during his life, and look at him now. So, and your job as someone who is um, trying to match up investors with people who are seeking investors is to try to make sure that the timing is right that the product that whoever is wanting to put out in the marketplace actually is going to be um, wanted and create success. Well, the the way that um, we actually work, so the um, our investors are actually investing in a pool of funds, so they don't have... um, a direct connection with a particular project, although we certainly let them know where all the pool of funds has gone. Um, but fortunately, in addition to providing capital, CEI has a great staff of business advisors, and so we're able to make sure that people have access to the good advice that they need in order to make sound decisions. And it, it's an amazing resource because, in fact, there's no charge for all of that advice. So it's really... Um, Maine is a great place in some ways um, to be able to start a business because we do have a lot of uh, resources available for business owners. 
How did you personally become interested in this line of work, and how did you end up in Maine? Um, I moved to Maine. Um, oh, it was sort of a sense of adventure. I was living in New York City and felt that um, my future wasn't in New York. And I had friends in Maine. I think it's the way a lot of people get here. And we had spent some time up here. And um, so we thought we would give this a try. And of course, there's so many things about Maine to love, beyond the physical beauty. But there are so many interesting and engaging people here. Um, I think this scale of life, certainly after living in New York City, was something I really valued. The fact that as an individual, you have the potential to make a difference here in the way that you can't in a more densely populated place. Um, and certainly as a, um, as a professional working at CEI, you have access to policymakers and decision makers in a state like Maine where you, you as, an influent, as an individual or as an organization can have some influence. Um, but in terms of CEI, um, quite honestly, I wasn't necessarily interested in economic development, but what I was interested in was um, working for an organization that aligned with my personal values. So I was personally interested in social and economic justice and wanted to do something that was closer to the community, something that would add value and do some good, benefit some people. And I was fortunate to stumble across CEI. And so it's been, uh, for me, it's really been a great opportunity to align both personal and professional life and values. Talk to me a little bit about this idea of social justice and what that means to you. So it's so social justice really means uh, it's about equality in of opportunity in one way, um, and certainly that's been um, the focus of the work that I've done at CEI. It's really about making sure that people get access to the resources that they need. That. Um, that, you know, as jobs are created, for example, in a small business, that they don't automatically go to um, the easiest to hire people, that there's an effort made to make sure that people, uh, low-income people or people who are unemployed or new Americans or women um, have access to the information about those jobs, that they're well prepared when they go for those interviews, um, and so that they've got a chance to compete. Um, unfortunately, there are sort of structural um, flaws in the way that you know society is organized, and so some of us don't, as we're growing up, uh, as I'm sure you know all too well, just don't have access to the same opportunities. Um, I was personally fortunate to get access to, you know, a good education, lived in a middle-class family. Um, you know, I don't know anything personally about hunger. Um, so I'm conscious of my own personal privilege and would like to see that everybody would have access to the same kind of opportunities that I personally had. So for um, a place like CEI, ironically, it's using, uh, you could say, the tools of capitalism to address um, social issues. So it's about um, making sure that people have access to capital and sort of understanding the good that can come from the allocation of capital. So, you know, obviously we talk, I talked earlier about impact investing. That's one aspect of it, but it's also investing in businesses that have good practices. So um, we wouldn't work with a business that was a polluter, that didn't have a safe work environment, that didn't treat its employees fairly. So we're... Um, interested in sort of promoting the kinds of workplaces that are aligned with our organizational values that will then create good opportunities for people here in Maine. It sounds like there's more than enough of those types of organizations that are out there that are seeking help. You know, it's, um, I think so. It may be, of course, that the kinds of organizations that come to us are self-selecting. But um, I'm quite honestly um, amazed um, on an ongoing basis to see how many um, entrepreneurs are out there with great ideas who really see their business as an opportunity to make a contribution um, to you know the community in one way or another, where they're thinking about being a good employer, or they're thinking about um, you know, how it relates to sort of some larger social issues. Um, I can give you an example. Um, we recently supported um, 
something called Blue Ox Malt House, which you may or may not have read about. But um, it's a young entrepreneur who's really uh, steeped himself in the technology of malting grains. And as I'm sure you know, malt is a key ingredient in uh, in making beer. There. In, with the growth of Maine's microbreweries, there's been a desire to, to do more organic beer, but there hasn't been a source of um, organic malt in the state of Maine. Um, so this young man has come along, and he's basically providing a missing link in the supply chain. So there are growers in uh, Rooster County who are interested in growing organic grain. He's going to be able to process that in a way so that it can support the main, you know, the growing uh, craft brewing industry in the state. And he's also going to be creating jobs. So he's, I mean, he's a perfect example. I'm sure he wants to make money, um, but he also really cares a lot about what he's doing and wants to do it in a way that he thinks is adding value to the community. Ellen, I'm fascinated by our conversation, and I I think like many people who live in the state, I, I truly believe that there is something important about... Um, I don't know, it, 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 living living your values, creating a mm-hmm. business out of your values. And it sounds as though CEI, um, this is something that's of pretty significant importance to your organization as well. Absolutely. How do people find out about the work you're doing with CEI Investment Notes or just CEI in general? Yeah, we do have a website. It's www.ceimain.org. Um and of course, they can always call us at 882-7552. Um, and we do have a Facebook page, and I understand we're also on Twitter. <laughs> well, great. I hope that people who, if you're listening and you have an interest in the type of work that CEI is doing, the type of work that Ellen is doing, you go to their website. We've been speaking with Ellen Golden, who is the Managing Director of CEI Investment Notes. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and bringing um, great businesses together with the investors that are looking to support them and um, keep up the good work. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. It was fun, fun to talk to you. Thanks. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by MacPage, an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Don't miss the first main live event taking place on September 24th at the Portland Museum of Art, presented by your friends at Maine Magazine. Take the day to be inspired by bold tales of creation, grit, and vision from 15 Maine speakers. Tickets are $100 and are sure to go fast. Find out more at mainliveevent.com. There are many guests whose names um, 
precede them, whose reputations are out there. And then when we finally get them on the show, it's kind of fun to meet them. Um, today, I have one of these guests. This is Tay Chong, who works in business development services at Coastal Enterprises Incorporated. Tay provides counseling through CEI's Start Smart program, helping refugees and immigrants to start, strengthen, or expand their own small businesses. Tay has lived in Portland for 36 years, where he has been actively involved in local and state issues regarding immigrants and refugees. It's great to have a chance to meet you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for um, having me on the show. I'm very interested in, um, in your background because you came to Maine from South Korea, Halloween of 1976. That's right. And there weren't that many people from, well, maybe there were no people from South Korea that were moving to Maine in 1976. That's probably true, yeah. So how did that happen? Um, my uncle and my father, they were orphans uh, after the Korean War. And there was an American GI, uh, George Wintel, who actually grew up in Wyndham, I believe, and befriended my uncle uh, while he was in Korea. And so when my uncle was a teenager, George wrote a letter to my uncle and said, why don't you come to Maine? It's a great place to live. And so um, George sponsored my uncle to come here, and he ended up in South Portland. And and uh, he had that American story where he came with, you know, just like $10 in his pocket, a couple suitcases, and ended up being a, um, a janitor at the local church and, a, and also at Fairchild. And he ended up working his way to being a general manager at Fairchild and ended up being um, vice president at AMD. Um, so obviously he said life is good here, there's opportunities. And in 76, Korea was, was economically, was, was in terrible times. And so my father said, all right, you know, um, what's important is not my life, but my children's life. And so he wanted to um, emigrate to the United States and give his kids the education that he thought that, that the country could provide. And, and so we ended up in South Portland for a day on Halloween, um, which was <laughs> culturally amazing because there's no Halloween celebration where I grew up. And uh, so I just remember vividly, like, um, meeting my cousins for the first time who didn't speak Korean, and we had, I have two older brothers, and the three of us were sitting in the living room just kind of looking at each other, wondering what we're supposed to be doing while my parents and my uncle and aunt went looking for an apartment. And all these kids would knock on the door with costumes, and they would say something in gibberish because we couldn't speak English. And they'd take, you know, my, my oldest brother, you know, not knowing the culture or the custom would grab handfuls of candy and give it to these kids. And there was like this universal aha in the neighborhood and all the kids just swarmed to our house. And they took all the candy and just like, you know, we learned the new ritual, which is like, you know, once all the candy's out, we turn off the lights and just hide and pray that the kids don't knock on the door. So that was the introduction to America for us. And so, yeah, it was where I'm still learning, even though I've been here for 30 years, but I mean, almost 40 years. But uh, that was, that's, that's how America was introduced to me was through Halloween. And as a kid, all the candy being gone, not having any for me. But. Especially like the part where you had to turn the lights off and <laughs> right, hide. Exactly. I can only like imagine a, as a small you, child being a small like, child. why is this that people do this in this country? Right. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I was, I, it, you reminded me of the story that I sometimes tell where I, I came to live in Maine in Yarmouth during the Clam Festival. Mm. So I was pretty young and I remember going by the Ferris wheel thinking wow what a great place Yarmouth has right. a Ferris wheel it's great you know? it's here all the time exactly so it's the same sort of like strange introduction to your new home um, and then you moved to Portland you actually grew up in Portland correct yeah I've been here almost my my entire life um, I grew up on Brackett Street in the West End and you know just being a young person i lived in almost every district in portland but now my home is in winding way off Capisic street in portland and so it's a great great neighborhood and i just love how portland has transformed um you know being the only kid of color now 42 percent of the school's population are multicultural and 40 percent of all the kids under the age of five in portland are multicultural kids so from and i used to joke there are only four kids of color in the portland school system and three of them you know, two of them were my brothers, and, and, and I was the other one. And there was a, a Vietnamese kid who, and this is a true story, who ended up being my police officer when I worked for the police off, uh, police department. Um, and that's all I saw were, were those 
you know, three other kids of color, including myself. And it wasn't until the mid-80s when you saw the Vietnamese and Cambodian kids come to Portland, and I could see Portland starting to transform. But I, I never would have imagined what it is today, and, and thankfully it, it, it is reflective of what the nation is. Um, and so we might think Portland is an anomaly, but if you go to any major city in the United States, it's actually more diverse. Um, and if you look at where the country is headed, it's going to be like this for the foreseeable future, if not more diverse. And so um, I think it was fortuitous that I was here to see that change. You were telling me before we got on the air about um, going to the Reiki school and having people follow you because they were so interested in, in the fact that you didn't look like everybody else right. and waiting outside your door to see you come out. And you described walking down con- or going down Congress Street and having cars actually stop Correct. to look at your family. Right. That must have seemed kind of weird given that you came from a place where that didn't happen at all. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's both scary and but also um, fascinating, you know. Um, so my wife had a similar experience. You know, my wife is from New Jersey. She's Irish-Ukrainian, and she has blonde hair. So when we went to Korea, it was the opposite. So she stuck out. And all the, you know, whenever we went to um, a park and all these school kids saw her, they would run to her like she was a rock star. And... And they want to ask her all kinds of questions. That was sort of like what I experienced growing up. But I couldn't communicate, and I wasn't in charge because I was only seven. So that's where it was a little scary. But um, it, you know, it was also fascinating. And just you know, being the only one that stands out, you end up being the observer. You are always looking for clues and and cues. Um, you know, that's what we do when we go abroad. We're always looking to see what's the social norm. How are people reacting and interacting? And that's how I grew up, and I still kind of grew. I still have that uh, where I'm always trying to observe. You know, what's the norm? Even though I've been here for almost 40 years, you know, that's the kind of education you get as a person of color in a place that's not very diverse. You're always not necessarily fitting in, but just um, trying to understand your surroundings. So that's where it was fascinating. It's interesting that you're able to take that view of it and you've been able to parlay it into something that has become your life's work rather than um, feeling so threatened by it that it made you angry or frustrated or cynical or bitter. Somehow you've, you've taken all of this experience when you were younger and as you were growing up and you've, you've worked with it in a really um, interesting way. Well, I've had my... Um, angry moments and cynical moments. Um, I think everyone goes through that. Um, you know, as you get older, you realize we're all connected, you know, and it doesn't really matter. It's just how you educate and how how you present yourself, the energy that you, you give out um, and how it's received is really important. And, and being here, when you're here long enough, you, you know, before we got on the show, we realized that there's already a connection, you know, and that's what that's the beauty of Maine. It's, and you know, Portland is small enough, and Maine is small enough that even if I'm a person of color, I can find a way to connect with you with with a friend or an event or something, and that's what makes Maine special. Um, and so you realize that, you know, as you build relationships with people and you build relationships with the place. And, and and you try to cultivate it. You want to be part of it. You want to add to it and make it better. And and that becomes, you know, that becomes everyone's life work. I think whether you're a business person or a clergy or whoever, you want to make the place that where you are better. And if you can do it in a way you're of service rather than trying to conquer it, um, you realize that doing things through service has a lasting impact. Um, whereas if you're trying to conquer something, it's all about being angry and, and you know, going for the win. It's, it's short-lived. And, and I, I learned that, you know, uh, after 20 years of advocacy and community work. And so now I'm in that stage where I'm trying to be of service, and I, I hopefully that, that will be my reputation. 
Yes, we were talking about um, <clears throat> your having graduated from during high school a few years ahead of me and how both Yarmouth and during high school, we were at the One Act Play Festival and there's that drama intersection. And, I, and, I, and one of the things I find really interesting about that is that um, Yarmouth, if you, if you had three people of color, four people of color living in the city of Portland when right. you were growing up, Yarmouth had zero. Right. Or maybe one. Right. But so even by Yarmouth coming into the quote unquote big city, we were actually experiencing some diversification. And, but we didn't even really think about it that way. It was like, all right, we're at the One Act Place. You know, we're all going to be doing this thing that makes us kind of happy because it's about drama and it's about getting to know people. And um, and it really seems like that's kind of the ongoing story of Maine. Sure. It's people in sort of the same place at the same time realizing, you know, there's a lot of commonality. Absolutely, yeah. And it's the touchstones, you know. And, and it sometimes it takes work to find what the touchstones, where the touchstones are. Um, you know, immigrants and refugees, they want a safe place to live. You know, they want to raise their kids where education is valued and community is valued. But sometimes we just can't get over the appearances. But, you know, it, it takes work um, to find the touchstones. And, it, and, and we did that with other communities, whether it was the French Canadians that had to integrate. It, they, they loved God and Christianity as much as the Protestants. It was just a different touchstone. Um, but that fear, it took a long time for that fear to kind of... Um, absolve. And it was through relationships and education. And I think that's where we are with immigrant refugee populations and multicultural populations. Um, yeah, we're all human and we all want what's best for our family and, and for our community. And everyone wants to be included and everyone wants to feel like they're part of a greater fabric. And, uh, and I think Maine has that. Maine gives people the opportunity to do that because it's so easy to, to build relationships. It's small enough. And, uh, and I think Mainers are open enough to do those things. I would agree. And I also think it's great that CEI is doing the Start Smart program where you're actually helping people to do something that enables them to, act, to have a sustainable, financially viable life within the state. Absolutely. So, so tell me about that program. Sure. It's... it's um, it's a program that's been around for about 20 years. It's about 17 years old. Um, and we've helped about 13 uh, immigrants and refugees um, through business counseling. We've um, started over 300 businesses in the state of Maine. Um, it's not just Portland and Lewiston, but it's, it's throughout southern Maine and some parts of northern Maine. And, um, you, know, you know, if you look at any main streets in Portland and Lewiston and now in Biddeford, you see ethnic restaurants and stores. That's where CEI has had a um, a part in helping those those businesses. In fact, almost all the businesses on Lisbon Street, that's kind of the gateway of Lewiston. Um, that's where CEI has helped so many halal uh, stores and restaurants. The same is true for Portland's, whether it's Congress Street or, or Washington Avenue or Forest Avenue, Brighton Avenue. All those ethnic stores and restaurants, we've had a part. Um, and helping to, to create those, those businesses. And according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, um, in 2010, they did a study on the impact of multicultural businesses in the state of Maine. They contribute $400 million to state's economy. So it's not, you know, it's not a small number. It's, it's a significant number, and it's a growing number. Um, and in fact, the multicultural uh, contributions to the nation's economy, so if you throw in you added up all the GDP of the Latino, uh, Asian, and African American, Native American population in the United States, it would be the sixth largest economy in the world. It's over $4 trillion. And that's, that's because they're a third of the U.S. population. By 2044, it's going to be almost 50% of the, of the nation's economy, I mean, a nation's population. And so, and that's not that far away. In fact, tw by 2030, it's going to be almost. Uh, Forty percent of the U.S. population, and that's the upgrowth. I mean, that's that's where the young people are. Um, that's where a lot of the energy is, in addition to what everyone's already doing. So we have to include that as part of our strategic plan as the nation evolves, um, and uh, and that's what I'm trying to do in Portland. I want to kind of carry that message. We can't just because we're in Maine, we can't forget what the rest of the nation is doing. 
Um, and a great example is Massachusetts, where in 1990, there were a half a million immigrants and refugee. Today, there's over a million. And so you can see how it's transforming Boston and greater Boston. And I think that 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 demographic change is, is going to make its way to, to Portland. You can already see it in southern New Hampshire. And if Maine doesn't jump on that, it's like missing the, the French-Canadian immigrants back in the, uh, the turn of the century. We wouldn't have the mills. We wouldn't have the businesses that we have today. Um, and we need to see that as an opportunity and try to reach out to those communities and make it welcoming. And Portland has done a great job, and so has Lewiston and other, other cities. But as a state, we need to do that because, as you know, we're the oldest in the nation um, by far. We're, I, I used to joke that I, always on the, I was always on the other side, but now I actually jumped over to the older side. But, um, you know, the median age is, is 43.9. And when I testified, you know, before the state legislature on behalf of um, the New Americans Resource Center, it was 42.7. So that's pretty scary when we're aging that quickly and we don't have people to fill in, um, you know, the boomers who are retiring, filling those skilled jobs. And we simply don't have enough kids in the state of Maine to fill those, those uh, you know, skilled jobs. We have more deaths than we have births in the, in, in the state of Maine. So mathematically, it doesn't work. We've got to figure out how to be more welcoming and inclusive um, if we want to keep Maine the way it is. Um, because, you know, Maine's going to change if you don't have people. You know, really, the, the concept of Maine isn't sense of place. It's the people who make the sense of place. Um, and it doesn't matter if that person happens to be brown or black or yellow, because when they come here, they value what all Mainers value, which is we want to create a safe environment, we want to respect nature, we want to respect the place that we're in. And, you know, that's what, you know, th those are main values that every immigrant has adopted, whether you were French-Canadian or Irish or, or German, because they were always the other at one point. But now they're the keeper of those values. I, I think immigrants and refugees will do the same just like all the other immigrants before them. What are some of the issues that you see as you're counseling some of these business owners and trying to just help them understand how to how to better work within the the city of Portland or the state of Maine? Um, well, it's it just familiarity of with the U.S. business um, culture, and and you know how you set up shop in in the Middle East is different from how you uh, set up shop in the United States. So there's a lot of technical assistance that needs to happen. Um, it would be wonderful to have more business advisors to, to kind of do that work. It's also access to capital when you're an immigrant or um, a legal resident. Um, you may not have the capital uh, because you don't have the, the credit history. And so not having uh, credit history makes it difficult for someone to get a, a commercial loan. So they come to CEI, we're a nonprofit financing organization, so we have um, uh, products that we could offer, but it would be wonderful if people could get credit so they can get other, or be able to get other products uh, on the commercial market. Um, and the other barrier is that we have a large Muslim population. It's the fastest growing population in the state of Maine. Um, it's the fastest growing religion in the United States. And, you know, they adhere to, um, uh, you know, the Sharia law, which basically means you can't take or accept interest. And so it's on a fee base, which is really, it's very similar to an interest, but it's, 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 the, it's the law. So... You know, right now in the commercial banks, there's nothing for that particular product. And to me, it's a missed opportunity um, for commercial lenders because if you have about 15,000 customers, which would be larger than the city of Yarmouth, and there are several banks in Yarmouth, as there are several banks in Falmouth, just imagine having 15,000 customers who are loyal that want to do business with you if you create a new product for them. Um, you know, Someone could be very rich doing that. Um, so I, I hope that uh, that message gets across that we need to work with this particular population because, you know, they're some of the most entrepreneurial people I've ever met. Um, 
you know, because they're not investing in stocks, you know, some of them, um, or, or interest-bearing products. They're investing in businesses. So what I see are um, young people who have acculturated and they have a bachelor's degree or a PhD, but they'll start a business on top of their professional job. And so that's the kind of stuff that, um, you know, that I think commercial lenders are missing out, is if we could create something like that, that would be wonderful. Um, and those are those are basically the two biggest barriers. It's really financing and technical assistance. I've been thinking about my sister-in-law, who is from Tunisia. She met my brother in France, and she was trained as a neurosurgeon. Um, they have a different educational system there. But in order to come to the United States to practice medicine, she actually had to go back. First of all, she had to learn English much mm. better than she had right. known it. Then she had to pass all of the exams um, just just to be considered a doctor, even though she had already been a practicing surgeon. And then she had to go. Um, then she had to make the decision as to whether she was willing to go back through a neurosurgery mm. residency. Mm. So all of the things that she had done up until that point were only somewhat relevant. Mm. She had to almost start. It wasn't completely from the beginning, right? But it was pretty close. Yeah. And yet she did it. And now wow. she's she's a neurology resident. She's wow. going through her training all over again. She's Fantastic. learned English very well. But just the amount of effort that she has put into doing this, it's, right. it's just staggering to me. You're right. Um, and, you know, the New American Resource Center at Portland Adult Dead is, is a vehicle to try to overcome some of those things. But it's staffed by one person. Um, you know, there's over 210 professionals who have um, professional degrees that are working with Sally Sutton, who runs the New American Resource Center. And she's the only person that's looking at certification, but also trying to assess people where they are and also trying to find jobs. Um, you know, there's 1,700 people taking classes at Portland Adult Ed. There's 4,000 people uh, in the ESL program. There are 4,000 people taking classes at Portland Adult Ed. It would be wonderful if it was, it was staffed it was it was readily staffed so that we can help people. Um, you know the state has been wonderful in in, in um, um, granting a, a two year program at New American Resource Center, but it's for one person. It would be, I, I think, what's needed is 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 um, obviously more money and more peoples and more resources so that they can help you know your sister in law with the accreditation process. Um, but it's also, it would be wonderful if the city and the state could see that as an important vehicle, too, as part of economic development. Um, but, you know, it's like anything. They're always competing um, measures. But to me, um, if you have somebody that is close to um, working professionally because they already have the degree, it's, it's, a, it's a really smart investment as opposed to waiting for... Um, you know, a main kid to go through 12 years of education, hopefully four years of college, and hopefully they'll stay in Maine. Uh, that's 16 years. That's absolutely necessary and critical. But if you already have someone who has work experience, who has the college degree, and all they need is maybe some English classes, or maybe they need some a navigator to go through the accreditation process so that they can be accredited or at least have most of their um, uh, work history be be uh, accepted. That to me is a smart investment. But you know the state is investing a little bit. But it would be wonderful if that could be bigger. Um, and and even then, it is an arduous process. Um, there's no guarantee that it's going to be quicker. But you know, if you have more help, perhaps it could be shorter, and perhaps we can make a deeper impact. Um, it's the it's to me it's the biggest issue in the state of Maine. Um, just I, I was alarmed at how quickly we're aging, and how quickly um, boomers are retiring. Uh, John Doerr is a, a, a research fellow for Georgetown. Used to be the head of the labor statistics for DOL for the state of Maine, and you know basically we we did CEI did a presentation um, to eleven businesses at the chamber. We worked in partnership with um, John T. Gorman's uh, foundations, PWI, Portland Workforce Initiative, Creative Portland. Um, the mayor was involved, Mayor Brennan. Uh, Chris Hall was also involved, and um, and obviously CEI, and we were funded by a Learner Foundation. And, you know, what he said was, 
it's it's not necessarily a number of people who are retiring it's the number of high skilled employees that are retiring that's alarming so you know we know that um, a company like wax if they don't have high skilled um, software developers um, and they lost say half of that population it has a dramatic impact on their on their business the same is also true for IDEX or any of the high-tech businesses that we have, whether it's biotech or, or, or semiconductor or computer software, all those great companies that are kind of revitalized and driving Portland's economy along with the banking and healthcare. When all those skilled workers are leaving and there's no one behind them to fill those positions, what happens to Portland's economy? And if Portland falters, which is half of the state's economy, what does that have, what kind of impact does that have on the state of Maine? Um, you know, most people forget that, you know, even though Portland's only 66,000 people, um, there's, every day there's like 40,000 people that come to work in Portland and 15,000 people leave Portland to go work somewhere else. That's a significant number of people that are contributing to the entire state's economy. And sometimes it's those small dominoes that have a rippling effect. And that's why, you know, I believe what I'm doing and what CEI is doing and, and all these collaborators are doing is kind of not necessarily sounding the alarm, but educating and trying to be proactive before it actually happens. Tay, I'm sure people are going to want to learn more about this because there have been so many interesting things that you've brought up. I can't imagine those who are listening um, are going to be left completely satisfied. How do people find out more about CEI and the Start Smart program and the work that you're doing? Oh, we're on our the website at www.ceimain.org, um, or they can always call Start Smart at 775-1984, and um, they can always email me or John Scribner um, at, at CEI, and we'd be happy to talk to with anyone. And thank you so much for this opportunity. We've been speaking with Tay Chong, who works in business development services at Coastal Enterprises Incorporated. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. You've been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 205, Bettering Businesses and Nonprofits. Our guests have included Jula Sampson and Jan Kearse. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Also, read about our guests in Maine Magazine. Love Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Bettering Businesses and Nonprofits show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Apothecary by Design, Mac Page, and Berlin City Honda of Portland. Love Maine Radio is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our content producer is Kelly Clinton. Love Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See www.lovemainradio.com or the Love Maine Radio Facebook page for details.